Welcome to Self-Discovery Radio, where the discovery of self is just a show away. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Their Story Matters. I am your host, Sarah Troy, and my guest today from Vancouver, BC, my local home town, is Michelle Camboli. And she's from the Harbour Side Family Counseling Centre. And we're going to be talking about your kids today. Why are so many kids suffering from anxiety? A child's life is meant to be one of wonderment, of joy, of learning, of exploration, of adventure. It's not meant to be a time that they are stressed out, um, having to be put on Ritalin or any other form of drugs. What is going on? How can we help our children? How can we stop the anxiety, stop the depression? Because if we don't handle it now, or help them handling, um, handle it, they're going to, as adults, have some major issues. So Michelle um, runs the Harbour Side Family Counseling Centre, and uh, you know it's kind of quite awful that we have to l- deal with mental disorders in children. But this is clearly her passion. This is something that she believes in and helping because you help kids, you're helping future adults. She has these uh, special cognitive behavioral therapy techniques and uh, she has a book, The Generation Stressed um, Into Fun, playing uh, playful exercises that can be practiced by parents with their children. Um, It's evidence-based to reduce the child's anxiety. It teaches children powerful ways to change their thinking, their patterns, their actions, and decreases stress and increases resilience. And uh, we're going to be talking about all of this, so let's just get right into it. Um, Children are a reflection of us, folks. That's first and foremost. If you're stressed out, they're going to be. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Well, thank you, Sarah, and what a lovely introduction. And um, so your last point is just so on the mark. I mean, we really are the original generation stressed. Mm -hmm. So our children are learning so much from our state of being, and we'll be talking a lot today about self-care. And, you know, 80% of kids say that what stresses them the most is their parents' stress. So when we soothe ourselves first and model the tools uh, to be able to manage whatever shows up in life, then um, that's really the first step towards arming our children and buffering them um, in the face of stress. Children shouldn't have to be stressed, should they? Um, you know, of course, when it comes to exam time or they're starting a new school or moving to a new place, there's always that little bit of anxiety, and that's you know quite common in life. If you teach them to deal with that, then it doesn't become so stressful. But we are seeing children really seriously stressed today to a point that they're needing medication or needing help, and we just shouldn't be there. Yeah. So walk into any classroom, and four children in every class will have clinical levels of anxiety by the time they reach adulthood, and one out of five children um, will be diagnosed with a a mental illness. But you're quite right in that stress itself um, is quite important. And um, manageable levels of stress actually improve the immune system and increase a child's resiliency. So we want them to be able to um, face uh, manageable levels of stress just for empowerment, and and they need that to be able to you know play a great soccer game and manage a test and and um, and become resilient when the stakes are high. But it's really prolonged stress that has an impact on the developing brain. And in, in fact, we know that 
children who have chronic prolonged stress, not only do they have this whole host of anxiety symptoms, but their brain development is compromised. Yeah, and you know, I've seen children that are highly stressed and it seems to come on quite early. Um, yes, we do really have to have a reflection of what's going on in the household. But would you also say that that, that anxiety level sometimes is a genetic thing? It's kind of born from parents of stress? Well, there can be genetic loading. We certainly know that anxiety disorders are, they run throughout families. So if there's a family history of anxiety disorders, it's always good to um, educate children so that they understand the signs to look for. But it can be so difficult to identify because it's an internalizing problem. We don't see the symptoms. We don't see the racing heart. We don't see the headaches or, or often put together that stomach aches might be um, a, a problem with anxiety. Uh, we don't see the racing thoughts. So often um, treatment really only comes into play after a very long, pro a prolonged period of time after the child has been suffering for, for, um, for far too long. And of course this old attitude of suck it up you know, uh, it doesn't really work, does it? Because if we can't allow a child to express their feelings and they suppress them, this creates so many issues for them in adult life. That's just it. So when we create the, the emotional ecosystem for children to metabolize all of that emotion where anger is acceptable and fear is acceptable and, um, and we talk about it within our families, then it becomes less likely that all of these anxiety symptoms are, are going to pop up. So, for example, I see a lot of children with panic disorder, and it's not unlikely for those children to um, have a lot of difficulty talking about what we deem as negative emotion. And so much of the process is really helping them to understand that all emotion is good. And all emotion informs us and, and, and guides us, but um, the, the key here is finding ways to be able to process it without judging it and, and manage it in a way that isn't going to be harmful to us or other people. Yeah, it's, it's uh, being emotionally tuned in without having to be overtly emotional, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So w what we're doing with um, play-based CBT, which is the, the main approach for children who are struggling with anxiety, is we empower them with, with the knowledge that when they change their thoughts and they take um, certain actions, they're actually strengthening themselves in the face of stress and they can change their emotional reality. So that's really exciting to kids when they, when they learn to be more internally in, in charge. Yes, and, and of course there are some, you know, genetic uh, anxiety traits that are within kids that, you know, that either pass down it's just or it's some sort of chemical imbalance that are in their bodies. And uh, of course as parents we need to kind of recognize what are the triggers. I think that's one of the big things is um, not every one of your children are going to be the, s the same. They're all going to react to life in a different way. But what are the triggers that cause them to really reach this, ex um, this high anxiety or any of those stressful modes of retreating? And how do we recognize them and what do we do with them? Understanding the triggers is key. So um, that helps to you know, understand the, the red flags and the situations that might create anxiety. And also understanding that any kind of genetic pre predisposition is just that. It's a predisposition. 
it doesn't mean that a child is going to suffer from anxiety with certainty. And so it's all of the um, environmental factors that Mm -hmm. will really influence whether or not um, a child struggles with um, uh, an overload of anxiety. And of course, if we teach them how to handle it, then, you know, as as adults were always saying, just take a breath, you know, just deep breaths. And I think sometimes even something as simple as that, you can see a child getting worked up again, you know, that temper tantrum sometimes that comes from that stress, doesn't it? That frustration. And if we can teach them to take a breath uh, and to kind of tune in or calm down or focus in on something else, it's a way of redirecting them from that. These kinds of tools are for everybody, not yeah. just those who suffer from anxiety, because we all benefit from mindfulness. We all benefit from learning to deep breathe or do square breathing. We all, as part of the human condition, um, face, face stress and, and need self-supporting um, tools. So when families bring these tools in as a life practice, it's incredibly mm-hmm. powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're into yoga, teach your baby yoga, right? Um, you know, if it's if it's a walk in nature, you know, it's find something that you like to do as a family together, and yeah. use that as the de-stressing point where people just have that ability to tune in. I think one of the biggest problems with behavior of our children today is that a the pressure that we put on them to be more than than what they're meant to be, you know, and and to grow at a certain level that each child has their own growth weight rate you know of learning um and all these pressures to be excellent and i think it's unnecessary pressure that we put on our children it's a debilitating level of pressure mm-hmm. that we sometimes and culturally place on our children and when we are constantly imposing our own agenda um is very difficult for children to find their inner voice because more than anything they want to please us. Mm-hmm. Of course, they want to be everything that we that we impose on them through our expectations. And so there's a fine ba- balance between supporting children to thrive and be successful in what they're doing and the kind of pressure that we're talking about where, where um, they uh, are unable to find the freedom to really discover what is their, you know, their true joys, their true interests, and their true, their true path. And childhood has really fundamentally changed. Um, so when we continue to kind of come back to creating the safe space for them to be able to talk about what's going on for them and what they fear their mo- the most, and, and then from there empower them um, with tools for change, then that's really the best that we can, we can offer um, I mean, we're talking about um, big changes in in the nutritional mm. um, structure and the amount of exercise that kids are getting and a decrease in play, which is really um, fundamentally, um, it's critical to, to children's emotional and, and physical development. So all of the things that we know to be really important in overall health and well-being um, are, are compromised at this point. I believe that we are all born divas. The ability to dream, to be inspired by life, to have a vision that we wish to aspire to. And I think if we allow that diva in our child, uh, nurture it, um, 
and allow it to grow in the way that it's meant to grow. Everybody has a divine purpose. Everybody's here for a reason. If we allow that child to make that discovery and nurture it, um, we're not going to have all these adults that are having to have these redirects later in life and going, I lived my life by society's expectation. Now I'm living my life through my own. You know, why can't we nurture that in our children now instead of having to wait for them to undo it all and start all over again later? Yeah, and that authentic voice and that path just naturally unfolds. Mm-hmm. We don't really need to artificially create it. I know so many children who are who are running from activity to activity, activity, yeah. and and so it doesn't create the space for them to just discover and and um, and play and allow natural consequences to fall in place. I can't tell you now. I've been a play therapist for twenty years. And I've seen a big difference in, in children's play activity over that time. And 20 years ago, children would enter into the playroom with a wonderment, with a joy, and they naturally knew what to do with the puppets, with the sand tray, with the miniatures. And, and these very rich narratives would just naturally unfold. And now the vast majority of children that come into my playroom really are at a loss. And they ask me whether or not I have computer games. Yes. So that worries me a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I had three children. And um, by the way, um, commenting that you've been in this business for 20 years, if anybody looks at her picture, she only looks in her 20s. So I'm not quite sure how she managed <laughs> to do that. Um, Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, you must be keeping, um, you know, being around <laughs> kids all the time must be keeping you very youthful. They keep me very <laughs> joy-filled, that's for sure. And that's obviously the key, folks. <laughs> so forget the plastic surgeon, just put a bunch of happy kids around you, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Now, I have three children, and they're in their um, late 20s to 30s now. And, um, you know, for me, it was they were never allowed to be more than two activities um, in a week with, you know, with each of them. Um, there had to be playtime when friends came. We had an open house after school. Anybody could come home for tea. Um, I had a big enough house that people could stay over. And uh, very often, as they were teenagers, wake up in the morning to bodies everywhere. But it was that safe haven where everybody came, where they knew they could express themselves, they could discover themselves, they played together. It was their exploration. And they used to put on plays for us and dress up and uh, constantly doing art, um, storytelling. And we learn, we learn from our children. Uh Not only do they entertain us, but we learn so much about ourselves through our children. And if we take that away from them, what are we doing? I'm such a believer that our children are really given to us because they're ushering us towards our own healing. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, one of my friends and and mentor, uh, Dr. Shefali, wrote a book called The Conscious Parent, and I think it should be on every family's bookshelf. And it's really a guide towards um, really coming back to owning um, whatever is within our own jurisdiction whenever our child lights us up. So instead of moving into powering over or shaming or, um, you know, a behavioral technique straight away, uh, it really encourages us to come back to ourselves to ask, okay, what is lighting up within me and, and what old stuff have I not taken a look at yeah. here? 
Yeah. And, you know, I think also the best time is when you can play silly buggers with your cha children. You know, just get mm -hmm. up, put the music on, dance wild and wacky. I used to burst out into opera with my kids just to drive them <laughs> crazy because uh, I can't sing opera. And, you know, it's when they know that you can be silly, it giving, it's giving them permission to be silly. Mm -hmm. Our favorite time as a family um, is in Montana in the summer. So we're, we're really lucky to have a, um, a lake house there where the children, they just are busy creating and discovering all day long. And, and, and I never hear I'm bored or mm. what are we doing next or I need something to do because there's this level of openness and it facilitates connection when there is open, free space and time to play and to create, there's a level of connection with self and with others that is really um, creating the, the ecosystem for brain healing. So we know that when we're outside, serotonin levels and um, dopamine levels increase, the feel-good chemicals in, in our body. We mm. know that when we're, when we're connected and we touch one another, that it increases dopamine. And we know that when we're playing and, and in this space of creativity, that there's an overall state of well-being that is, is undeniable. So it's really fun to just hang out and create fairy houses and, you know, do silly videos and, and, um, and clear the decks and clear the technology. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. So... Yeah, we're going to talk about that for sure. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, uh, something I've, I've talked about this movie with you before about um, Inside Out, the current movie that's out there, which I think is now becoming every therapist's tool. Um, because they I don't know if you've seen it yet, but they really hit on a nerve where it's it's talking about our emotions and how we're not meant to suppress them. We're meant to pay attention to them because when they come up, they're coming up for a reason and it's to identify what that reason is. Um, we can't suppress, we also can't blow things out of proportion. But if we allow something to come up and really look at it, this, the reason why, the trigger, we have a better understanding and more control over our emotions. Um, it's not a question of controlling the emotions, it's just allowing the emotions to be evenly balanced. Um, a great movie there that managed to do that. There were several things that I loved about that movie, and, and after you um, brought it up, I, I rushed to the theater <laughs> <laughs> with my kids, and my 17-year-old loved the movie, as did the younger kids. So my that was really fun My 26-year-old was crying see. along with me. <laughs> mm, I was right there with you. Yeah. And I, I love the way they externalize emotions. Yeah. So, you know, instead of... Um, communicating that um, you know emotion is something that we really um, are are batted around by and, and have no control over the externalize externalizing of the emotion through the characters was I think really brilliant and one of the things that we've done um, through our work is we've taken some of the thinking trap patterns that go hand in hand with anxiety, and, and we've done something similar by creating characters that children can identify with. So it's very difficult to, to tune into the counterproductive thoughts that exacerbate, exacerbate anxiety, but through um, these characters, they're able to identify it in a really fun way. So 
For example, we've created Mind Reading Mary, and Mind Reading Mary comes into your mind, and she makes you believe that you know what other people are thinking about you. So um, that's just one character. Another one is All or Nothing Andy, and, um, and he moves you into the state where you might say, well, you always side with him, or you, or you never believe me. And so it really gives children a playful way to identify what's happening internally, and that's something that this movie does brilliantly. Yes. And, you know, p- kids do that. We can't expect them to express themselves. You know, they haven't found those words yet. They don't understand these emotions they're going through. So by giving an identity, you know, that other ego to it, and, you know, George, Mary, Apple, whatever is coming in, it, it just allows them to kind of be able to express from that person, not from themselves. It, I think it's a brilliant way of doing it because the last thing we need, I, mean, I was brought up in the era where we suppress, we don't talk about our feelings, we keep it to ourselves, you know, stiff up a lip on all of that. But the worst thing we can do to humankind, we are expressive creatures. We've just got to learn how to express in a way that really does articulate our feelings in a very cohesive way. And externalizing that emotion by sharing Mm -hmm. and connecting and finding ways to be able to release is just, it's, um, it's, it helps children and adults to really be in their highest purpose. So we have families who've created worry walls, massive worry walls where they write their worries on stickies and just put it on the wall so that they no longer have to carry that worry with them and instead they will then replace the worry with something that's going to a statement that's going to be more empowering and when families are doing this work together and this process together it really um, encourages children to stick with it and it and it makes it acceptable it makes the um, the, the emotions that feel so uncomfortable somehow acceptable and tolerable and um, and children learn to observe them rather than become them. Exactly. Uh, good point. You know, th- I think the thing we have to remember is this. Um, through no fault of our own parents, we may have been brought up in a screwed up way. And that was because the way society, you know, society did, uh, dictated the way we were brought up. Uh, children should be seen and not heard and uh, you weren't allowed to express yourselves and um, you don't question an adult um, in all of this type of thing and we know that there were feelings that needed to come out you know one of the worst things I think you could do to a child is not hear them not listen to them and that really wasn't around in, in my generation so if we know this then we don't go and impose upon our children the same kind of upbringing um, you know, we look to how yeah. would we have want to have been brought up yeah. and look to doing that with our own children. And sometimes that invalidation is coming from a place where we're really wanting to be helpful. So um, in a sense, we're not purposely as parents denying and invalidating the feeling, mm-hmm. um, but oftentimes wanting to help our child feel better and move through it more quickly because their distress is our distress. So instead of sitting in that distress with them 
and helping them to move through it naturally through hearing and validating their feelings, we're wanting to rush them through with comments like, oh, you'll be okay, or, um, you know, just focus on something else. Yeah. Instead of, instead of tell me more, I'm so glad you're sharing this with me. What's that like? And where are you feeling that in your body? And if that feeling was a color, what would it be? So really, when we shift away from, you know, trying to move them through it, which is a natural desire for every (laughs) parent, and instead allow the space for it, then um, we're giving permission and, and teaching that, you know, this really is, this, this is really acceptable. In fact, this is good. I think, you know, the, the best thing we can learn from our children is to find that inner child within us. And, and just because we've grown up and we carry responsibility on our shoulders and we're meant to have it all together because we're big people now, we should never deny that inner child inside of us. Because that inner child is our compass. It is that emotional gauge of how we're going to react to life. And um, very often the simplicity of that voice um, can guide us so much better than our adult voice. It's essential we keep it alive. And when we have children or around children, it keeps that voice alive. And I think it's, it's a very beautiful place to be, isn't it? Oh, it, the joy in, in being connected with your inner child is it's amazing and it also um, allows us to have a level of understanding and empathy for what it's like for the nine-year-olds around us. So if you're not in touch with your inner nine-year-old to some capacity, how can you then look at the state of your own nine-year-old and know just um, what that might be like, how terrifying certain situations might be, or how confusing um, life can be at times. And and it's in its through connecting with with our childlike self that we can best access joy. I mean, as parents, we're purely custodians. We don't own our children. They're not our property. We are custodians. They're guiders. Um, Keep them safe, uh, to, to feed them, to love them, to nurture them so they can go and be everything they're meant to be. Um, this high authoritarian uh, that happens in some families of dictatorship is only going to destroy your child's creativity, create more anxiety, um, completely debilitate any self-esteem or even self-purpose because everything they do is to please that dominant parent. And sometimes when we talk along those lines of really ushering our children through and really allowing um, them to have their authentic voice. Sometimes there's a confusion um, in terms of what that means for guiding. And really, when our children are well attached, when our children are connected to us, they naturally want to thrive. They naturally want to do the right thing. And so behavioral problems are far less likely. And this style of collaborative parenting and attachment parenting um, doesn't mean um, not setting boundaries. It doesn't mean it's a boundaryless um, family system. It means those boundaries are in place, but in a way where we're not powering over and shaming our children, mm-hmm. where we're holding our ground um, from a firm place, but a loving place. Yes, children must never, ever feel 
that discipline is a lack of love. You know, mommy or daddy doesn't love me anymore. And, and the moment they get to that spot, you've put a crack in that, in that you know, lovely vessel and uh, it will get bigger. And children need to understand the purpose. So it's interesting because my, my youngest son has been in swimming. And this past year, um, he has really decided that he does not like swimming. So I, we, we made the adjustment, and he, he was to complete you know, the lessons because we'd signed up and he'd made the commitment. But this year, you can choose another sport. So he was thrilled with that. But then when he saw through his brother, that there were other ways that he could use the swimming, through lifeguarding and through teaching, he decided that he wanted to go back to swimming. And I said to him, you know, this is really interesting because last year you really didn't enjoy it. And, and he said to me, it's because I didn't know why I was doing it. Aha, aha. <laughs> so when children know why they're doing something or why you're putting something in place and it's explained in a way that seems reasonable to them, then they feel honored. Yes, yes. I like and my kids to, Yeah, exactly. And I think it's good for them to try as much as they can. They may only try it for, you know, one season and they're no it's not for me. But that's okay. You know, when you whenever you see somebody else playing the game or some your friends are playing the game, at least you know a little something about it to be able to speak to it. You've had a taste of it. But, you know, for me, it's always about, you know, getting out there and tasting life. How do you know what you're going to like if you don't try it? That's it. So when you're fostering curiosity and when you're, when you're exposed to a really wide variety of different um, environments and situations, that's where you learn so much about yourself and your interests, and that's where dreams are created. So when we pigeonhole children and um, they are doing only one thing and committed to one thing because we want them to become an expert in it, um, you know, while it, it's wonderful for, for a child to master something, we have to be really cautious about the, the price that that, um, that that means in terms of just life exposure and openness to new experience. I mean, we really don't want our kids to conform to something. You know, it's, um, you know, they, they, obviously, if you're in a classroom, there has to be the respect of everybody else being there. You have to know when to, to be expressive and when not. But this kind of conform to a system because, you know, it's a system in place that does it, that just generalizes. How, you know, how do you take that creative child that's had it at the home front when they get to school, everything becomes so regimented? Yeah, and we're really talking about heart-mind development. We're really talking about um, heart-mind connection. And when we um, educate our kids and we support our children through conversations that facilitate self-discovery, whether that's the discovery of emotion or the discovery of an interest or their value system, then we're, we're helping them to develop uh, a heart-centered life where empathy naturally unfolds, curiosity naturally unfolds, a sense of connection and a desire to, um, to be helpful to our human family um, unfolds from there. So there, there are all kinds of programs now that really excite me um, in their focus in this area, and one of them is the Mind Up 
program that was developed by the Goldie Hawn Foundation. So we have teachers all over the Lower Mainland, um, probably about 1,500 of them, who have been trained to put this Mind Up program into the classrooms where children are learning the power of mindfulness and the power of connection and altruism. So uh, a teacher would ring a synergy bell a few times throughout the day and children who may have been very, very busy in their studies or writing an essay or doing art will then just stop what they're doing and take a deep breath and close their eyes and just simply turn inward to notice what's happening within them at that particular moment. And, and it helps them to ask, am I aware? And if I'm aware, what am I aware of? And through that tuning into self, they're much better able to tune into others. And, and it's interesting because the research is now showing that this very simple mindfulness practice, which is so easy to implement, it boosts academics, um, academic success, and it increases altruism in the classroom, and it decreases aggression. So instead of addressing the behavior directly, well, which we need to do, but in, instead of addressing the behavior solely, when we also teach mindfulness, we eliminate the, um, the, the underlying reasons for the misbehavior. I mean, really, I think kind of getting your kids into, um, for as it used to be, okay, everybody's going to read now for a while. It's quiet time. It's relaxation time. You know, more running around or, or going crazy. Um, but in now, I think if, if we taught our kids right from the word go, breathing techniques, a form of meditation, um, respecting silence and the beauty of it, instead of trying to cram every single moment in the day, if, if we teach them this right from a word go, these are practices that are going to see them right to the end of their days. And this is something that they need more than ever with the imposition of mm. technology. And technology is a, an incredibly powerful tool and, um, and a benefit in many ways, but at the same time is creating a level of a divided attention that's really interfering with the ability to just notice what's happening from within. So when if children can learn um, a mindfulness practice and, the, like you say, the benefit of silence and the benefit of just quiet, uh, open time and value that over technology, then hopefully we're creating the kind of life balance that we want for our children. I mean, as, as a human race, we're coming so far too overstimulated. Uh, far too overstimulated. There's so much information that we're trying to process uh, constantly and a, a lack of boundaries between work life and home life and, and a divided attention that it is really, we're going to pay the price and we are paying the price for that. Um, so many children will, will tell me, I just, you know, it frustrates me because my dad or my mom, you know, they're, they're looking at the computer and I'll have to ask them for something three or four times and mm -hmm. they don't even look up. And um, so we, we all struggle with this. It's, it's interesting because in Germany, they've um, passed a, a regulation that employers can no longer contact their employees after work. So they can't receive phone calls or texts or emails under any circumstances. 
And um, so they're really um, understanding that value of family time and time off and um, and the pe- people are more successful at work and more focused at work when there is a division of um, between that time between personal life and and uh, work life I mean if you are you know working 60 hours a week and and uh, you know and your kids are in activities and you're rushing from this one to that one and then it's supper time and then bath time and have you done your homework and go to bed where is there ever any time to actually sit and communicate with your kids a lot of families don't even eat together uh, you know, for me, it was important to have this round table where we sat around that round table and no topic was off. You know, even if it was sometimes a, you know, the old, you know, mommy, what's a homosexual? You know, <laughs> you got that talk. Um, you answer it I- to the level of their understanding. You know, you don't go, oh, no, this is too embarrassing. You brought up something very, very important, and that is the um, the gift of having a meal together. And most families are are having meals together less than three times per week. Many families aren't having dinner together at all. And they're really robbing themselves and their children Mm. of a time of key connection and skill building. We know that children who eat dinner with their families regularly uh, are more successful at school. They have higher vocabularies and they're more successful socially. Exactly. So just that half an hour of dinner time is um, really loaded with uh, learning opportunity and it's a key developmental time. So um, if there was one change that families could make, uh, that's an easy one to make and one that's really rich in terms of the, the outcome. Well, it's, you know, uh, one hour of quality time as opposed to, you know, two or three hours of, you know, inequality. Uh, it makes mm-hmm. a huge difference. It's uh, w- when the child knows is that uh, they're not going to get, you know, berated for, for asking a question or pointing something out. And it's around the table. It's eaten in gratitude. Um, I think the other thing is something that really should be done is kids helping to make the dinner or, you know, setting the table and doing all of that because it teaches them an appreciation for the food on their table and for the process in, in, uh, in getting it. There's so much that they learn through that. It's, it's a great self-esteem builder because they're contributing to the family and, and all children want to feel important and as though they are um, a key part of the family team and there's problem solving and, and math skills that they're that they're learning and um, and often cultural development. So um, in our family, we, we make pierogi together. So I'm Polish. And it takes hours to make pierogi. Mm-hmm. But the conversations that would unfold are just wonderful. And um, my deepest connection with my grandmother, who's a, just a remarkable human being, is through the, the cooking yeah. that, that we would do and the recipes that she would pass down. And um, so that, that really deepens connection and a, a sense of, I belong. I belong in this world. I'm connected to something. And they, they discover what they can do. My son in his late teens decided to take over the cooking. You know, for him, when he's cooking, that's his soul. It's, mm-hmm. And when he, it's not only beautifully, you know, presented, you're eating every single bite with his soul and his passion in there. And he would experiment with this dish and that dish and just look at you eagerly. Do you like it? 
because that's his love, you know. And if if I was in the kitchen, say no, you can't, you know, um, or you're not doing it right, or you, I don't mash the potatoes like that, you know. Where are we allowing them to find their own expression? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes the, one of the the most powerful things that we can do is just step aside and observe and delight in what our child is doing. And really, ultimately, that's what we all want is to be seen and delighted in and celebrated in whatever we're doing and given the room to discover um, on our own. So natural consequences are a great teacher. There's very little that we actually have to impose as parents. So, um, and our kids yeah. are much, Cook much together. Yeah, exactly. Cook together, do things together, do the laundry mm-hmm. together, you know. Uh, is that no we all going to go out folks but first the vacuuming has to be done and everybody pulls their weight and let's just do it and then we can go um so you know when divorced today and i yes i am divorced um uh, in fact it was my kids that came to me and said it's time for the divorce and i said Mm. i'm waiting for my youngest and she turned around she said you know basically screw that you know it's uh, get a divorce we're fine (laughs) you know and it was permission from my kids but a, they wanted stronger. to see you. They wanted to see you happy. Yes. It was more important for yeah. them to see their parents happy than together and and miserable. Exactly. And this is mm-hmm. the thing we go around trying to protect our kids so much from this and from that. And in the end, you know, I realized I should have left years earlier because mm. my kids, especially my oldest one, had kind of got caught up in that whole trauma that was going on. And for a while in her relationships, repeated that behavior. Mm. And, you know, this the thing is that when we see things are going wrong, try and mend it, try and rectify it, try and come together to kind of find out what is the problem is and see if you can resolve it. If you can't, then separate in a way that you are still co-parenting and respectful to one another. Don't let it get out of hand where the point you can't stand to see each other and these poor children are caught in the middle. This is where the personal ownership becomes so important. And of course, any divorced couple is going to take the same problems that they had when they were married into their divorced relationship. But when you continuously put the children's needs at the forefront and tend to your own um, through therapy or self-examination or some kind of um, practice of self-care, then that's really ideal. But far too often, it's very painful and difficult for parents um, to be able to separate the two. And in that case, it becomes really damaging to to the children where um, they are, you know, caught in the middle and and, um, denied access and, and all kinds of things can happen. But we know that children in divorced households do have higher levels of stress and that's where it's really important that we that we keep a close eye on what we're communicating um, not only verbally but non-verbally um, and and really honor and and respect the the place that our partner has in our children's lives and see that that it too is equally important um, to our own role yeah, it can't become a competitive thing. It can't become a, a thing that, um, you know, uh, I'm not going to speak to her, so therefore I'm not going to see the children. Um, or all, you, all you're doing is looking to pick a fight. Um, you have to step outside of your own ego, your own pain, you know, your own discontent, because you've got lives here you're responsible for. And, uh, you know, it's basically at that point as adults, 
we need to grow up and put our big shoes on. And, uh, you know, in my case, my husband and I separated but still stayed in the same house for two years. Um, and uh, and then eventually he kind of just, okay, it's time to move on. Um, and that was okay because we actually still went and did functions together, even mm. on holiday together, but we were separated and we were actually much nicer to each other. <laughs> so, you know... That's wonderful. That's ideal. And that's really what... W- I mean, if you can separate in a in a way where... Um, and that's a loving pl- process and an honoring process. Um, it, it, it really um, it validates the child's sense of security in, in the world. And what ends up happening when one parent undermines or, or criticizes the other parent, it's a fault, an assault on the child. So they feel a deep sense of loyalty to each parent. And so when one of those parents is undermined, then it's a direct attack on the child. Yes. And also to mm-hmm. understand that the, uh, from a child's perspective, to actually understand the parents going at each other is nothing to do with the children. And that is something, even if that does happen, when things get out of control, you have to let your kids know. The other thing I'm huge on, and what I used to do when my kids started fighting, I would make them hug each other. They had to hug and kiss each other when they were at that age where especially a girl boy, ew, I don't want to kiss her, I don't want to kiss him. But they were not mm-hmm. allowed to separate to do anything until they did and they always ended up laughing. Consequently today, we're still a hugging and kissing family, even though my son's six mm-hmm. foot two. Um, you know, it's that hug and that kiss is still very important and I don't care how old you are, it's essential, I think. Resolving things quickly and letting them go is, is such a key sign of resiliency. And it, it, it's interesting, they did a whole body of research to um, figure out what um, was the difference between a family that was happy and thriving compared to those that were suffering. And the number one component was the ability to move on quickly. Mm. It doesn't mean that you agree. It just means that you accept the differences and you move on emotionally rather than holding grudges. And, and hard to do, hard to do, you know, because clearly I- you, if you're moving on, there's, there's going to be something there. And I think, you know, certainly when your kids get to kind of that teenage years, stop trying to hide things, be honest, you know, honest and open with them. You know, one of the things that empowered my, my children is when I turned to them for help and advice mm. and love, and it made them feel that you know that they could step up and the, not only their voice was being heard but it was being respected but they could now do something for me it's really important for children to understand that their parents are human beings and there is a way to um there's a way to embody that where it doesn't impose our own needs on them where we're share, just sharing honestly but in a way that's age appropriate and when they understand that um that we're able to problem solve and we're able to move through it, but we're being really honest about what the struggle might be, um, that's great role modeling because then they see, okay, so my parent too has stress or they have problems that they face and they're able to talk about it, they're able to share it, that's not a scary thing, and they're also able to problem solve through it. Well, maybe I can do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Maybe I can find answers too. Exactly. Mm-hmm. 
I think also let's you know I think this other thing too and especially it comes from mums you know I'm, I'm guilty of this um, the martyring you know you're not feeling well but you go and do it anyway um, you know the time of month is killing you but you kind of pretend it isn't uh, one of the people I interviewed uh, has this wonderful thing she calls it four seasons for four weeks where she breaks down the mental cycle down to each week and each week will give you the emotion that you're going to go through and she has this little calendar and you just let everybody know what week you're on and they know how to treat you in that week and not uh. what not to expect and it, it's a simple thing that really can kind of stop asking something from somebody where they're not in the right space to give it and I think that opens up to that respect and uh, uh, takes away an expectation and it teaches uh, children especially that um, you cannot be you know happy-go-lucky all the time and ultimately we want our children to learn how to express and hold their boundaries yes and if they if they're not able to to do that with us. If we don't permit them to set boundaries with us, then how are they going to learn to do that in the world with their friends, with, yeah. um, you know, maybe um, a, a coach that is, be, you know, being too hard on them, um, or, or as an adult with, um, with a coworker or a boss who might be, you know, bullying or stepping over them. So ultimately, our children learn to set boundaries through our ability to hear them and validate them. It doesn't mean that we back down necessarily from whatever the behavioral expectation is, but just simply hearing it and saying, I understand why you feel that way, or I understand um, what you want from me is, um, is really key here. Um, I did a program with my kids and it first came out, um, uh, and it was um, a woman on sex education. Um, and she was teaching the sex education to three-year-olds and in a way that kids would understand you know this is m girls have boobs boys have penises girls have vaginas talking as it was no wooing it and you know mommy and daddy and person that mommy and daddy says you can trust but anybody else touches you you have to tell mommy and daddy even if they say it's a secret and it was an empowering of children to let them know those boundaries that just because an adult comes along and uh, don't tell your mommy and daddy or you know this is our secret we you know it, it this is what lays open to that victimization by setting those boundaries and letting them know they can speak out when something is uncomfortable and doesn't feel right is something we should be teaching all our children and ultimately we want our children to not only listen to those physical instincts and and be aware of those bo body boundaries but we we want them to listen to their uh, emotional information and um, be able to, to create emotional boundaries. So if we took that level of education, the emotional education, as seriously as we do the um, physical boundary education, then, then um, we're really setting our children up for, for um, self-protection and, um, and safety in the world, emotional safety and physical safety. Yeah, you know, just empower them right from the word go that um, they have a voice, something doesn't feel right, speak out to it, no one's going to shut you down. It's essential, I think, uh, a tool for the rest of their lives, uh, no matter their sex. You know, let's talk about uh, parents who become everything to their children at the s sacrifice very often of their relationship with their husband and, of course, any relationship with themselves or friends. Um, 
you know, I've, I always say to people, you know, go back to work after a certain period of time, maybe only one or two days a week. Um, or, you know, this is girlfriend night, or this is mom and dad's night, or this is our time. Again, back to those boundaries. But I think for a parent, especially a mom, really hard to do. You know, it, it is, because ultimately we want to give everything over to our yeah. children. We want them to thrive and to be happy and connected. And there's a fear that we carry that we're not doing enough, that we're not giving enough. So parent guilt is debilitating. Yes. Um, but when we self-care and have room for our own passions and interests, and we're able to bring that into our mothering and our fathering, and um, it's a tremendous amount of responsibility on children if they feel that they are the be-all, end-all in our life. Mm. And we want them to feel an, a deep sense of attachment and love and importance, but not uh, as though we are reliant on them for our own well-being. So, yeah, create room for your own play and connections with all kinds of other beings and your own passions and interests. And then, and then you're really modeling to your children that yeah. you can be a balanced being. Now, another thing with kids is you know what happens when they especially get into the school front or around other crowds. There is that uh, judgment that comes up. Now, kids as a rule don't have judgment. They learn it from adults. But they get into the school thing. And it's like, I don't play with girls with short hair, or you look funny. And, you know, this is the start of the bullying that's going on. Um, it, how does a parent manage a child that is, um, you know, that starts this kind of behavior? How do you nip it in the bud? Well, we have all kinds of conversations about empathy, first of all, and try and draw on some of the experience that they may have had of being rejected or shunned. Or and once they make that personal con connection, it becomes um, it becomes sort of seamless for them to shift gears. Um, but when children feel really safe in our emotional presence and feel honored, they're less likely to engage in that way. So it all starts, uh, you know, within the context of our own relationship and, and um, the respect within, within the family. Um, but, you know, naturally, kids categorize. It's part of the way the brain works. So um, there's so much information that we're dealing with uh, all the time that we tend to categorize things as good or bad, and we do have a negativity bias. So um, it's not unusual for kids to come up against this, but it's really, it, as with any issue and any problem, if you're bringing up it up in a way that isn't shaming or accusing, and you simply want to find out, hey, what's going on here? Let's talk about it. It sounds like this is becoming an issue and I want to support you with this so that um, so that you're learning to do the right thing of course then, having animals really helps with with that empathy and you know taking care of the family pet um, showing compassion to other animals um, you know teaches them how rec recognize that passion and that connection with others doesn't it well, it does, or looking after a younger child, mm -hmm. um, 
you know, teaching them to read or being being a best buddy um, really empowers children to to um, feel their value. Uh, and also um, a sense of responsibility towards others who are in less of a place of power. Um, but, it, you know, if a child is acting out in that way and bullying or being hard on other children, that's a state of suffering, and there's something going on internally yes. with that child that we really need to pay attention to. And if we don't, it's going to be something that will escalate, and then the guilt will sit, fit in later in life. So. Um, it's mm -hmm. not something you can ignore. You know, no, my child wouldn't bully. Well, you know, uh, clearly something's you happening. You bet they can. No, yeah. So, you know, like <laughs> parents, you know, stop saying my kids would never do that. Um, mm -hmm. Because somewhere along the line, you know, uh, they could th and they may. And, of course, it depends on the influence. And it also depends on what's going on inside their lives. Now, you know, having raised three teenagers and being an open house for other teenagers that were having difficulty at home and going through things, Teenage years, I think, are the worst time <laughs> for a child um, because they're not yet an adult. They're caught up in the hormones. They're wanting to express themselves. There's a lot of confusion and uh, a lot of chemistry going on in their body that's kind of throwing them out of the works. It's a hard time for parents, isn't it, and kids? Well, it can be. It can be a destabilizing time. Um, there's so much rapid brain development yeah. that's happening and and their frontal lobe which is the executive functioning and the logical thinking hemisphere of the brain is um is developing leaps and bounds but at the same time um they don't yet have their footing but when parents um really enter in and have a great deal of presence and um and are supportive by being involved and, you know, I think it's a time where parents need to be involved more than ever. And, and often we back off in order to facilitate independence, which is, which is really important. But from emotional communication standpoint, we need to be around more than ever. So I'm a bu big believer in taking advantage of those driving times. Yes. <laughs> Those are times when parents really stay connected and you, you see a lot and you hear a lot and uh, that's when kids are, are often sharing a great deal and nighttime becomes key. So uh, right before bed is a time where children and teens naturally want to unload. So if you can be available during that time, that's, that's a great opening. Uh, so try and have a consistent presence during those times. I mean, a lot of the time that people go to addiction at that time is that in a lot of ways they're trying to escape what the 